in his weird way, this 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 emotion from which we often recoil gives us clues, gives us a, a, a picture of what makes life worth living. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Daniel Pink is a non-fiction writer who's produced a slew of best-selling popular psychology books, including Drive, When, and To Sell as Human. Originally trained as a lawyer, he worked as a political speechwriter before quitting to strike out as an author with his first book, Free Agent Nation. His latest book is, in my view, his best book. It's called The Power of Regret. Daniel Pink, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm glad you liked the book. Maybe you didn't like the other one, so that's why this one is the best. The others were great, this one is better. So you tell us that regret is our second most common emotion after love, yet many people reject it. Why is it that uh, we regret's gotten a bad rap? Uh, because it's unpleasant, it doesn't feel good, and we don't know how to deal with it. Um, I think that's what it is. And I think that at a, at a simple level, I think the, the, the broader level is that, especially in America, and I think to some extent in Australia, we are slightly over-indexed on positivity. Uh, we think that the way to flourish as people is to be positive all the time, that we should have only positive emotions, that we should think positive and be positive in every waking hour. And that goes against what the science tells us. The science tells us that negative emotions have our place, have their place, and in particularly this incredibly common and transformative negative emotion called regret can lead us to make better decisions, solve problems faster if we treat it right. So you talk about four categories of regret, foundation regrets, boldness, re boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. Can you give us a little uh, encapsulation of, uh, of what's in those four big categories? Sure thing. Uh, and let me tell you how I found them. Uh, I, I ended up, uh, as part of my research, not, not only looking at the science of regret, uh, uh, neuro the neuroscience, the social psychology, the developmental psychology, the cognitive science, to gain some insights about how prevalent regret is and what its function is. But I was also curious about what people regretted. And so I put up a website called the World Regret Survey, where we have gathered regrets. It's kind of crazy. So we have nearly 20,000 regrets now from people in 109 countries. It's amazing. We have hundreds from Australia. And, um, and I found, as you suggest, that around the world, people have the same four core regrets. And I'll tell you quickly what they are. And what's important to keep in mind here is that these are not, the, the, the core regrets are not about the domain of people's lives. It's not like, yes, people have career regrets and yes, people have romance regrets, but that's not the most important thing. What's most important is what's going on beneath the surface. And beneath the surface, there are four core regrets. One, foundation regrets, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets that people have about uh, uh, blundering small decisions early that have big consequences later on. So I didn't save enough money. I spent too much money. I didn't take care of my health. I didn't work hard enough in school or university. Boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. A big category. These are people who regret not traveling, people who regret not starting a business and instead staying in a lackluster job, people who regret not speaking up, people who regret not asking somebody out on a date years ago. A lot of those. 
Third category, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. These are people, again, have a chance to do, the, to do the right thing, do the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing, they regret it. Not everybody, but I think most of us. Um, here, it tends to be things, predominantly things like bullying, marital infidelity, other forms of those kinds of moral transgressions that harm other people. And then finally, the fourth category are connection regrets if only had reached out. These are about relationships that come apart, uh, not only romantic relationships, in fact, not mo mostly not romantic relationships that come apart. People want to reach out. They say it's going to be awkward. The other side is not going to care. So they don't reach out and things get worse. So some of that seems like it can be solved, but uh, others seem, other parts of that seem like uh, perhaps you wouldn't want to spend too much time looking back. You know, if you've got a foundation regret about not going to university, perhaps you can go back to university for a couple of decades, but if you're sitting in your kind of uh, your, your last few decades of life, that's probably not something that's that's worth spending a lot of time on. Right. On the other hand, connection regrets, you can you can always call a call a friend to presume they're still alive uh, and uh, rekindle that connection. So yeah. is there a risk in, in bundling it all together that you're uh, saying that all of these things are potentially good or, or perhaps some of them are a, a little bit risky? Well, it, it depends. It depends on what you mean. I mean, you use the word solution, and it depends on what we mean by, like, what's the solution to these regrets? So let's take your, your, your well-chosen example about that person who is, say, age 70 and regrets not going to university. All right, so can that person go back to university? No. I, I mean, I, mean it can, I guess technically they can, but it's, it's, it's very, very unlikely. So I think for that person, it's like, so what is it about not going to university that, um, uh, sticks with you for for this time and I think you have to go back and think about that decision and excavate that maybe it was uh, I didn't I didn't commit myself enough to learning in general uh, that I didn't um, that I didn't realize how important learning itself was maybe I didn't have enough faith in my own abilities and um, and so you can actually extract lessons from those kinds of things going one layer deeper into the into the regret and so if it's if it's like okay i'm not gonna have a chance to go to university but at age 70 i can still learn a lot um you know maybe i wanted to read history or study history in university i can read books about history and study history right now if that's something that i wanted to do um i could you know at age 70 I'm not going to be likely to become fluent in another language, but maybe I could do that. Maybe I could pick up a, a, an instrument. That, that is, if it's the learning that bothers you, then you you can you can extract a lesson from that and have learning that isn't about the isn't about going back to university. If it is um, more about perhaps I don't know belief in yourself, well, you know, if um, at age seventy you should be believing, you know, believe it, you know, you made it. You made it to age 70. So um, you can actually say, you know, look for all sort of excavate your virtues and say, well, how can I spend the rest of my life in a meaningful way using my full strengths? And so um, so we can't repair every single regret re directly. But what we can do is we can learn from it. We can learn what we value and, it, and we can use it to instruct us for the rest of our life whether that is the 20 years of somebody age 70 or the 60 years of somebody age, uh, age 30. What's more, what you also see on the, um, the older people get, and I didn't write about this much, I should have, uh, and I've sort of discovered it subsequently, is, is how important it is for people at that age, say 70 and above, to talk about their regrets and share them with younger people. 
and use that as a way to transmit a lesson. So there's a number of surprises for me in looking at uh, the regrets. Uh, uh, one is the importance of bullying among uh, moral regrets. Yeah. Uh, the fact that that's even higher than infidelity. Uh, did, did that uh, leap out at you? It really did. It really surprised me. And, and it wasn't, at first I thought, as, as the things started coming in, I thought it was like an, an American phenomenon. Nope, it is, it, is, it is worldwide. And at some level, that's kind of heartening to me. You know, you know, the fact that people are still bothered by mistreating others. I'm glad that they are. And, and I think it tells us something about who we are as human beings, that when we transgress, when we do the wrong thing, many of us, not all of us, feel bad about it. And, and what I've seen, I didn't, I didn't write about this either, because again, I'm getting, it's so interesting, Andrew, because I'm getting emails, um, you know, where people are pouring out their heart and, you know, sharing their stories. And, and I've had um, several emails and communications with people on, on bullying on both sides, where the bully literally 30 years later, 40 years later, goes back to the person whom he or she had bullied and tried to make amends. And in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, the person who was bullied, the person on the receiving end was less traumatized than the person who was on the delivering end. It's really striking. As I, as I told you in one of our communications, I was reading your book at the same time as Troy Bramston's biography of Bob Hawke, where yes. he reveals that one of the reasons that uh, Bob Hawke says that he forged such a strong relationship with, his, with Israel is that he had physically bullied a Jewish kid at his school and, yeah. and felt a really strong sense of guilt for that. I mean, it's a sort of a remarkable way in which a whole nation's trajectory can be changed by uh, one person's sense of uh, uh, moral regret. Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought that was a fascinating story. As, as I said, and, I, and I, I thank you for sending that to me. Uh, I think you're going to see it in the in the uh, in the paperback edition of the book. Well, that'd be uh, be great fun. Uh, it's, uh, the one of the things that didn't surprise me was that quitting was a big regret. Uh, Steve Levitt ran a, a study where he did a randomized trial of. Uh, getting people to quit uh, and found that almost invariably people who quit were happier uh, six months afterwards. Uh, it seems as though very few, if you're on the fence between quitting a job or not, you should jump. Uh, likewise, one of the lessons from you seems to be if you're on the fence between catching a plane for an overseas holiday or not, you should get on the plane. Well, uh, it's interesting. I hadn't made the connection to that Levitt work, uh, either, but I think that you're right. I, I think in some level, it's a that, that we're, we tend to be better off in general, okay, so we're talking very general terms here, with with a slight bias for action, um, and and quitting is quitting is an action, um, getting on a plane is an action, starting a business is an action, and and what you see, very very robustly in in a piece of polling research I did for this book in in America, was that regrets of act inaction outnumber regrets of action. It's a very robust finding throughout all of this research. In my own research, what I found is a, is a pretty significant age effect where when people are young, say in their 20s, they have roughly equal numbers of regrets of action, what I did, and regrets of inaction, what I didn't do. But as we age, it's the inaction regrets take over, just like your 70-year-old guy who regrets not going to university. And uh, you've said that uh, one of the things about writing the book was that it caused you to reach out to an old college friend. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, but that very many people don't do that because they're scared that their uh, their, their uh, outreach will be rebuffed. Uh, do you think that's uh, that's something we should uh, we should all do more often? I I think I can offer that recommendation without any lawyerly equivocation. 
I truly do. And and the reason to me, I don't know, I felt this, I mean, as you suggest, I felt this kind of personally because I was somebody who wasn't that great about reaching out. And I share the same sort of apprehension that I share that, that some of the people I interviewed with and people I heard from in the survey um, is um, is that people say first, oh, it's going to be really it's going to feel awkward if I reach out to somebody after 10 years, 15 years. They're wrong <laughs> when they actually go and do it. <laughs> it feels much less awkward than we think. We're, we completely overstate the amount of awkwardness we feel in general. Um, awkwardness in some ways, it's interesting. I haven't, the, the, uh, Melissa Dahl wrote a book about awkwardness. I'm trying to remember precisely what it said, but my own interpretation of, from talking to these people is that awkwardness exists as a kind of something abstract prior to the act rather than during the act. Like the act itself is a way to defuse some awkwardness, which itself is another reason for a bias for action. Anyway, so we think it's going to be awkward and we think the other side's not going to care. We're wrong about that too. Uh, I mean, the other side, you know, and people, the other side almost always cares. And then there's a character in the book whom you might remember who had this university friend who she drifted apart from. They were very close. There was no, you know, massive blow up or anything like that, but she, they, she drifted, they drifted apart and she said, oh, I should, I don't want to call her. She's going to think it's, if I reach out, she's going to think it's creepy. That's the word she kept using. She's going to think it's creepy. It's going to be so creepy. And I finally got exasperated with her and said, okay, Cheryl, what would you do if, if Jen, that's the other woman's name, reached out to you? Would you think it's creepy? Oh no, I wouldn't think it's creepy. I would think it was lovely. And I'm like, hello, you know? So anyway. Um, I really think that I feel this pretty strongly and, and I might have my own sort of personal emotions about this, perhaps accentuating the evidence. So I just want to be clear about that. But, but to me, in my own life, if I'm at a juncture where I'm thinking, should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at the juncture answers the question, reach out. So the most amazing story in the, in the book comes from Bruce, a Texan who is riding a train in Europe. Tell us that story. Well, Bruce was a um, Bruce is an American guy. He's now in his early 60s. He lives in Spokane, uh, Washington, in the northwest part of the United States. And he was uh, studying. He wasn't studying abroad. He had graduated from college and was working on a farm in Sweden. And in his final weeks there, he uh, decided to travel around Europe, as many Americans and Australians will do. And he was on a train, riding along a train, going through France, and a uh, young woman comes on and sits in the empty seat next to him. They start talking, they start laughing, they start playing games, they start holding hands. They, uh, you know, in Bruce's, it's like something out of a movie where that's like there's this immediate bond and connection. And she was, she's an au pair. She was an au pair from from Belgium, working in France. She was going back to Belgium. So the train rumbles along. It's this magical moment, but it comes to. A, a meaningful point when the she says, well, this is my stop. I have to get off. And Bruce says, I'll come with you. And he, and she says, no, no, no. My father would kill me. Bruce doesn't know what to do. Remember, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-Wi-Fi days. So he takes a, he just finds a piece of paper, scribbles his mother's postal address in Texas on a piece of paper, hands it to her. They kiss. She leaves. And Bruce says, 40 years later, uh, I always wish I step off the train. Um, so to me, that's a, a classic, not a classic, but a, but a pretty powerful boldness regret.
the uh, the story of Bruce seems yeah. like it's got terrific lessons for the rest of us. But for Bruce himself, I feel like a philosophy of no regrets might serve him better. Maybe. Um, um, I think that Bruce has to analyze and interrogate why this bothers him so much. And I think part of it could be that it Bruce never once, I talked to him several times, Bruce never once conjured visions of my life would be perfect if I had stepped off the train. I would be married to this woman. I'd have led a completely, not once. I think that it was that he had a chance, a moment in his life when he could do something, where he could act, where he could take a chance, and he didn't do it. And I think that that ultimately is what bothers him. And so, um, is it? But so, so, so on, on those two things. Number one, not to spoil this, but Bruce actually. It, you know, after the after I interviewed him a couple of times, went out in search of this woman, like uh, posting in Craigslist Paris for telling this story and like scanning the Facebook and you know looking at au pair Reddit, Reddit au pair groups from you know uh, trying to find you know sort of this woman named Sandra. Um, but I think the other lesson for Bruce is that is to recognize that he's not alone. There are a lot of people with regrets about boldness. Um, I think that Bruce is disclosing it for him, and I, and I think his actions is proof of that, that by talking to somebody about it, which he had never done before, was a form of sense-making for him. And he realized it actually was significant to him, and he wanted to do something about it. Um, I don't think he's going to find this woman whose name turned out to be Sandra, um, but I think that Bruce can take this lesson at this relatively young age of, the early, of his early 60s and say, you know what, Bruce, in some other aspect of your life, step off the train, man. Take the chance. I feel like Craigslist uh, Paris is unlikely to come through. I am not. I'm not optimistic about his the chances of a reunion, but it would make a great, um, you know, addendum to another edition of the book. Absolutely, and I like this notion of regret as being a sort of photographic negative, uh, a way in which uh, it might uh, give us the the notion of, of the inverse of a good life. Do you want to expand a little bit on on that concept? Well, I mean, I think what, you know, we go back to these 20,000 people and their regrets. When people tell you what they regret the most, they are, as you suggest, they're telling you what they value the most. Um, and, um, you know, and so um, each of these regrets that, I, that, we, that we just outlined tells us something about what we need out of life. And so foundation regrets, we need some measure of stability. A good life is not wobbly. Boldness, again, we talked a lot about that, but... I mean, my own view is that there's an existential aspect to the boldness regrets that at some level, we know we're not here forever and we have to shoot our shot. We have to do something. Um, moral regrets, which we also talked about, I think show that a good life is is good. Uh, a good life is like, like you know, B Bob Hawke saying, you know what, if I want to lead a good life, I have to be a good person. I have to treat people with dignity. And then uh, connection regrets are about love. And so... In, in this weird way, this 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 emotion from which we often recoil gives us clues, gives us a, a a picture of what makes life worth living. So one of the things I particularly like about this book is that where your previous books have tended to distill academic research for a popular audience, this one produces new research. Uh, how did you find that process of uh, conducting the World Regrets Survey? And, and do you think that's something that you'll be doing for future books? Um, well, thank you for. I mean, th thank you for for saying that. I, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and 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 one of the things is, um, 
it's easier to do now than when I first started writing. That's like a, that's a huge factor. So when I did a big quantitative survey, I was able to work with a data analytics company, a big public opinion survey of the U.S. I was able to work with a data analytics company. Um, there are it's easier to get panels, panels meaning uh, respondents to the survey um, because everybody's online now. So you don't have to spend a fortune trying to call people on on phones. You you can you can reach them more easily. Um, so it was able to do that. The analytic tools for analyzing the data are, I mean, simple. I mean, you have something like a program like R, which is open source. It's free uh, and incredibly robust. Um, and then on the World Regret Survey, you know, thanks to social media and an email newsletter and simply the web itself, I was able to collect these things. The tools for collecting them are great. So um, anyway, so I found it. Um, you know, it, I got to the point where it's like, whoa, if I have questions, I don't have to look for the so-called experts to answer all of them. I want them to answer some, but they're, they're, they're investigations and things I can do on a scale that would not have been possible when I first started writing. And I find it really exciting and, and I can't, I, I think it's gonna become much more common uh, among the folks who do what I do. The other thing I noted about this book is you take seriously the replication crisis. Uh, so you've got folks like Brian Nozick and others who've uh, noted the, the real problems of replicating studies, uh, which, you know, is at least as bad in psychology as any other field. Yeah. Uh, is that led you to think about how you want to, to write in future and, and moving away from single studies to, uh, to, to doing uh, meta-analyses? I mean, the problem is that a, you know, a meta-analysis is scientifically right, but it doesn't tell as good a story. You don't have this one bold team of researchers right, out there right. breaking new ground with an exciting finding. Uh, it's a bunch of wonks grinding out a result from the distilled wisdom of the data. I, I do take it. I do take it seriously, and I'm part because um, um, the way I look at things is is like I want to be right and I want to be interesting. And so you can be right and not interesting. That's not a that's not an effective business model. Uh, you can be interesting and but not and, and not right. That's not a game I want to play. Um, and so I want to be I want to be in the quadrant. If you think of it as a two by two matrix, I want to be in the quadrant. It's like I want to be accurate and I want to be say something interesting. And um, and that requires not using certain things because I don't have full faith in them um, because. Um, you know, it goes it goes so wildly against some other kind of finding. Or if I talk to somebody in the field, they're saying, I don't know about that. Or there have been there are plenty of them where I mean, some of the older research where the the sample size was 43 undergraduates. And I'm thinking, I don't know, 43 American undergraduates in 1987. I'm not sure we can extrapolate from that um, uh, any great you know, massive conclusions about the human condition. And so I try to take that seriously. And also, you know, part of it is that I've gotten, um, um, I got burned by it. Not, not, I don't wanna say I got burned, but um, I wrote, I, uh, in, in another book, a book called To Sell as Human, I wrote about a, a study that was totally interesting and um, it ended up being wrong. I mean, the study ended up getting, getting pulled. And so, you know, I have like, you know, two and a half pages devoted to this thing offering advice based on it and it's wrong yeah i mean i think about one of the studies that has been a, a staple of a lot of popular psychology books uh Shinaranga's study about uh, jam choice uh yeah. suggesting that uh when you put out 
fewer jams, people are uh, less likely to, more, more likely to, to uh, sorry, more jams mean people are less likely, to, uh, more likely to taste, fewer jams mean people are more likely to buy. Uh, but then the replications haven't uh, haven't held up on that. It doesn't seem as though people are overwhelmed in, by cho- by choice. Um, so again, it seems as you as you put it so neatly, uh, a tension between the story and the science. Uh, and this is yeah, uh, yeah it's and one you of the things we he- tried to push back on our evidence commission report recently. Yeah, and and you know, and I, I think that the field is 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 correcting itself. So right now you have a move, a much greater move toward open science where many of these studies are being pre-registered. You know, there's pre-registration of, of a lot of these studies. Um, and then people are publicly sharing their data. And I think that's very, I think that's uh, very healthy for science. You know, and science is, uh, you know, science is a, is a, is a story. It's a, it's an, it's an evolution. It's a work in, pro- in progress. So we have theories get, re- theories get revised, methodologies improve, tools improve. So, you know, I don't look at this as, um, I think in most cases, the, the, the problems with replication are not because of, you know, bad actors. Um, I think it's because there's just, you know, um, in, in the same way that we had less, 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 less adept tools and, and perhaps less rigor in the past on a, on, a, on a variety of things, we now have better tools and more rigor. I think it, and I think it's very healthy. But, I, but, I'm, but I'm cautious when I write about this mm. stuff now. But this is going to continue to be a tension, right? So if you look at uh, Philip Tetlock's stuff on super forecasters, the best forecasters tend to be foxes who have, think about multiple explanations and multiple causes and uh, adjust their views on the fly. Um, But the best talking heads on cable TV uh, are the the, um, hedgehogs who know a single big thing, have a grand unifying vision and can tell a good story. Um, so that again must be a challenge for you as you uh, as you work out whether you're going to just push for one big exciting idea or say, well, it's very complicated, and here are the seven things that are driving it. It is. I think you can. I think you can um, navigate between those two shores. I really do. I think it takes a lot of work um, to land in the in the in the in the box in our two by two matrix of interesting and. Uh, and and accurate, um, uh, I, I think I think that it's possible because there's so much research out there, and I think a lot of it is good. But you have to spend the time going through it, looking at it, pruning what pruning what's good, and 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 taking the remainder. And I think that if you if you devote the time to to actually doing the work, you can land on on claims that are justified and relevant in relevant in people's lives um but it requires work <laughs> i think that, i think that's the i think that's the, the stumbling block for a lot of people it's it's much easier to have a unified theory of something that you've concocted and then look for evidence to 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 support it at some level it's easier in the academic world to make itty bitty incremental utterly safe you know advances that actually don't really push the field that far because you're you're not going to be wrong. Um, but I think it's I think it's possible to do I think it's possible to do both. I think the very best scholars have always done that. But I'm for but here's the thing I'm for just in general in in, in science and in my own work is is, is showing your work. Um, so so for instance in my books against the wishes of my publishers I literally have 
I have not not endnotes. See, some people like one of the things that bothers me as a as a reader is like the endnotes are too general. So it'll say page six, and it'll just be one note. You're like, okay, what does that go to on page six? I actually have numerical endnotes. So if I make a claim, I have it says 14, and then you can go in the endnotes and look up that study and see, I, I wanna show my work and you say, tell me whether I got it right. And there've been a few instances where readers have, uh, I made one, uh, one, I don't even know, some kind of clerical mistake or something in my book drive where I had a footnote and the thing that I cited to had nothing to do with it. And, and readers said, wait a second, this doesn't have any, you know, you, you make this claim and the study that you cited has nothing to do with your, this claim. What's going on here? And I'm like, and I say, what are you talking about? And I go and look and I'm like, oh my God, somehow I blundered that. And so I, I fixed that. So as long as people, you know, transparency, showing your work, because um, I really do think that most people have pretty good intent. I really okay. liked your discussion of introverts and extroverts where you say, you know, it's a bit silly to be putting people into these two boxes as Myers-Briggs tends to uh, in practice most of us are uh, ambiverts sitting in the middle. Um, I wonder whether, you know, with the benefit of 20 years of, uh, of hindsight, you would now have written a book subtitled, Will Right-Brainers Rule the World? Uh, do you take a sort of, uh, do you think maybe a middle-brainer approach is, uh, is more appropriate than the kind well, so of you're, you're, uh, you're stylistic left-right-brain? You're, 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 you're looking at the subtitle. The, the, the title is A Whole New Mind. So, so the book ends up, um, the book ends up talking about why you need you, you need both, and, I, and in the text, I make pains um, to say that you that that you have to have both ways of you have both ways of you have both ways of thinking. But it's a good subtitle, so it might be the case where being interesting was you know a higher priority. But I, I but the book is called A Whole New Mind, and I take pains in the book to talk about that you need both. So where do you go for your stories? Because you, you've come up with some remarkable tales. I'm thinking about uh, in when, when you talk about the story of uh, Mumbai's double wallers. Uh, where do you, well, what are your main sources of inspiration when you're thinking about new projects? Oh, well, thanks for that. I mean, on the double wallers, these, these, these guys who hand deliver lunches in Mumbai in this pretty chaotic way that you think there's no way this is gonna work and it works flawlessly. Uh, I, had, I don't know, I had, at one point I had read about them and I was curious about how they did their work and I had a chance to go out, I figured out a way to go and actually spend time with them doing their deliveries, which is totally interesting. Uh, in, this, in this book, I, in this book um, you know, because of the World Regret Survey, I had people telling me their stories. I mean, I had, I had an embarrassment of riches there. Um, in other cases, you know, what, I, what I do is I, um, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a pack rat in, in the sense that I keep a lot of files and things, uh, even paper files. Like if you look, um, you might be able to see this. I don't want to screw up the connection here, but I have these like boxes that you can see over here uh, of different things. And they're full of like paper and things I've ripped out. I have, I use a lot of paper files to collect stuff. Uh, I have a ridiculous number of folders on Dropbox. It's just an absurd number of folders on Dropbox. Um, so I will, um, so my, my process such as it is, is I collect a lot of stuff and I go back through and, and prune it periodically. And so I will see sometimes a, um, a story that I just think is interesting and I'll, and I'll save it. And then maybe literally three years later, I'll come across it and say, oh, I could use it for this. 
So that's that's so it's um again like it's there's no I mean my theory such as it is is do the work collect stuff go through it systematically read through all the regrets uh, to categorize them what I did was I read them through I, I started saying okay I'm hearing certain phrases over again then I was able to search for those right like for instance the phrase speaking up I should have spoken up I, if only I'd spoken up okay let me look whoa that's a thing that's a big thing all right and then what are the categories I don't know but you know what I do I read through them all I take notes and then in that case I actually printed them out this table right behind me right here I just laid out the printed things and started saying, where do they belong? What are the connections? And things like that. Uh, yeah, when I look at your peers, people like uh, Atul Gawanda or Stephen Johnson or Maria Konnikova or uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, most of them have a, a home, either at a, a journal or a you know, magazine, magazine, university or hospital. Um, you don't have that. You're, uh, you've been, your, your home is your home. Uh, so uh, why have you made that choice and where do you get the kind of peer effects that, that they would otherwise get from their co-workers? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, I mean, Atul Gawande is, is who's, who's outstanding is not sim. I mean, he's ridiculous. I mean, he's a doctor. He's a physician. He does. He does endocrine surgery. I don't like he's at a, playing a totally different game than than I than than. Than, than I am. He's a medical professor and a surgeon, so he's playing a different game. Um, Maria, um, you know, I think she and and, and Stephen and and um, and Malcolm, um, they they sort of have they kind of have they, they they don't really have homes as much as they have Airbnb rentals. Um, I might be a little bit more slightly more nomadic than than they. Um, I just I just like it that way. I mean, um, it's just it, it, there's. I haven't actually thought about it all that much. It's just, I guess it's just a, it's just a preference. Um, I like to be able to do my own thing. I like to be like, I have a very lean operation. I, I like to um, um, be able to move fast and, and change directions if I have to. Um, and, you know, and also, I'm also, I also believe very deeply in low overhead. Uh, I've never had, I've never, I've been working for myself for over 20 years. I've never had an office outside of my home because I don't want to pay rent to anybody else. Um, so being cheap has its advantages there too. In terms of the, the, the peer effects, you know, one of the great things is, um, is uh, in this, is, um, you know, if you're a writer, this is why I like being a writer, because you can have a question and you can call people up and ask them stuff and sometimes they'll take your call and they'll tell you. That's cool. You know, and so um, and, and so that's so so I just so I haven't you know over the last twenty years or so there are people who I've gotten to know, and so I'll just re I'll just reach out to them. Uh, I don't feel like I need to see somebody in an office every single day in order to have a relationship like that. Now there are times there are times just to be fair that um, where I sort of miss out sort of the 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 joy of working on a team and and doing something that only a team can do, um, but. I'll, I, I will forego that in order to attend fewer meetings. <laughs> it, uh, it certainly seems as though you've, you've managed to hit a, hit a sweet spot. But, yeah, you've clearly got to build that external network if you're not to become Absolutely. a guy with a whole lot of post-its and string, a string on the wall writing. Exactly. You've got to be more gregarious. You, you've, got that, you've got that exactly right. Not only is it ineffective, but it's unhealthy if you do that. 
Um, so, so I'm I'm pretty good about um, maintaining those kinds of um, those those kinds of contexts. And what did uh, your work in politics uh, teach you for uh, for what you do today? You worked for Robert Reich for a period, and then you were Al Gore's chief speechwriter. Uh, what did uh, what did that give you? Um, I mean, it gave me respect for people who enter public service um, in a way that I think is diff- is different from from someone who's only seen it from the outside. Um, I, I I admire people who like you who are willing to stand for election who are willing to put themselves out there and do that it's not how i am constituted i, I think i'd have a very difficult time doing that but i so i have i have an admiration for people like that uh, i also think that there's a there is i think in terms of the sort of communications and writing and whatnot i i, I do think it reinforced my belief in um simplicity and repetition so that you know in, in politics sort of um, making things simple, but not dumb, not too simple, but trying to explain things in, in as clear and straightforward a way as possible, uh, and also recognizing that uh, if you if you have an idea, if you have a cause, if you have anything, simply saying it once is not going to do it. You have to be willing to be persistent. I, I look at my old boss Al Gore. He started talking about climate change in the 1970s. He was walking, he was going around with a slide carousel talking about this in, you know, be, be, you know, before there were personal computers talking about this. I mean, he's been sticky, stuck with this for decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. And, um, and I think that that is one of the things that I think that's, I think that's one of the lessons is that it's, it's, it's hard to make change, but it's not impossible if you stick with things. And how do you write? Uh, do you have a practice of starting Slowly. at a particular time? Uh, yeah. how, how many words would you produce in a typical day? Do you have a word uh, uh, word target? I do. Uh, I'm pretty, um, you know, like I, I think that a lot of sort of personal practice and is is a is a toggle between what what is loose and what is tight. And so for me, sort of idea generation and idea gathering is, is kind of loose. That is, I, I do it somewhat systematically, but I, I don't, I don't do it kind of metronomically, you know, um, whereas, um, writing, uh, I'm pretty tight. So when I am writing a book or writing a long article, uh, I will come in, I'm, I'm talking to you from my home office here. It's a garage behind my house. I will come into this office. I, I don't, I'm not super early. I'm not super late. I come in maybe eight 30 and I will give myself a target almost every day. And, um, the target varies. Um, 500 words, 600 words, 800 words, not a huge target. Um, that 800 words is hard for me. And, you know, especially when I'm working on a book where if, if, I'm, if I'm writing about something I already know, you know, that I've already researched and studied, that's fine. But, but I mean, writing is a form of figuring it out, of, of, of sense making it itself. And so I don't bring my phone with me into the office. I don't turn on my email. I don't do anything until I hit that number. And then and, and the, the work doesn't have to be perfect, it never is, but I have to hit that number. And then I come in the next day and hit that number. And then I come in the next day and hit that number. And then I come in the next day and hit that number. And believe it or not, with that approach, the pages start piling up. And what share, when you're working on a project, what share of the uh, time is the preparation and what share is the writing? Interesting question. I'm not sure because I sort of, 
blend the two in a way. So what I will do is I will do, I, I will do enough research. For me, it's the borders are murky. So, so for a book, say, I will do enough research. First of all, I, I'll do some initial research to sort of write a proposal to, to give the broad contours of what I think the book is. I'm very rarely right. Like, like if you look at the proposals for any of the books and the book that came out of it, they don't look alike. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll do the research um, pretty consistently. Um, you know, again, almost always uh, carving out the mornings to do it. Um, and then I'll start making notes and then I'll start making notes about the shape of the book. For me, as a writer of books, structure is everything. If I can figure out the structure, I can do the book. If I don't know what the structure is, I feel lost. And so the research is about, at some level, learning, but also about finding the structure of the book. Once I have a sense of the structure, I will chart it out. And then at that point, I will take a piece of it and I'll actually start writing. And in starting writing that piece of it, I will discover that I need to do more research, but I know I have a better idea of what kind of research I need to do. So I'll go back and do that. And then I'll write some more. And then I'll say, wait a second, I have that hole. I got to do more research. And then eventually the balance starts to tip between like early stages, it's heavily research and not that much writing. Later stages, it's more research than writing, but it's never a moment where it's like, I am done researching and I will begin to write. That's not how I roll. Yeah, so things aren't aren't perfectly planned out before you uh, before you start typing. No, because the thing is, is like for me, writing is a form of figuring out what you think. That is, mm, I don't mm. the idea the idea for me like when when I write, it's not like okay, I know exactly what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna say and I'm gonna put it on paper. It's more, I have a vague sense of what the main ideas are, but I have to write it in order to figure out what I think. Yeah, I've always admired Michael Lewis, who says that uh, he's uh, plotted the whole thing out and the writing itself is a pleasure because it's just a matter of getting down on the paper what sits in his head. Um, I I've always found that more you can do that approach is the only way I can work. You can you can you can do that with narrative. Um, that is that is that if, if I have a particular story to tell, that is actually relatively easy to plot out because it has a beginning, a middle and an end. But when it comes to some of the conceptual stuff, it's much harder. Mm, mm. The story, the, the the elements that are stories, those move very, those those you can do pretty, those I can do pretty quickly. What's next? You don't have a proposal that's been accepted by a publisher yet. I haven't written a proposal or presented a proposal to anybody on anything. Um, um, I will probably take a break from. I'll probably you know spend less time talking about regret and then. Um, try to look through, but again, this is where this is where being a pack rat is helpful, because I have a, you know, thirty-page list of ideas on my Dropbox, and I have right there one, two, three. Well, you can't see the three boxes over there, but I have a total of twelve boxes of potential projects that I've been collecting stuff for. So I figure, I have if I have a, if one out of the twelve works, I'll be happy. Final questions. Uh, Daniel Pink, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Stop thinking about, stop caring about what other people think of you because they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that, I used to believe more that everybody had an equal chance to make it, especially in, in, in America. And I believe that less now.
I believe, uh, um, I, I used to believe that life was less of a birth lottery, and now I believe life is more of a birth lottery. Well, if we believe Raj Chetty's work, that's America that's changed as uh, as well as your beliefs. So uh, that's a good point. I can hardly, very... hardly hold that hold that against you. No, um, very, uh, very, very, very good point. When are you most happy? Uh, when I'm with my uh, wife and and kids, and we're eating and laughing. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Exercise exercise running and um and some weight training um i feel like crap if i don't exercise and we can't go past the mental and physical health without uh, also getting you to tell us the secret to a good nap as well which is one of the great <laughs> insights of uh, your books <laughs> well i mean there is a scientifically proven nap uh, which is that um what you want to do is you want to have a cup of coffee and then um take a 20 minute nap and um when you wake up um 20 minutes is the i 10 to 20 minutes is the ideal napping time. You nap longer than that, you get that groggy, boggy feeling known as sleep inertia. Um, if you have a cup of coffee before you do that 20 minute nap, the caffeine takes about 25 minutes to get into your bloodstream. So you get the best of both worlds. I did one of those today. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Vodka martinis. Shaken or stirred? I have strong feelings about this, Andrew. Stirred. I don't like what the are the merits of, of stirring. Uh, you don't ah, get the chips of ice. You get the, you get the coldness without the thing that makes it sound seem like like a like a like a like a uh, a frozen dessert Slurpee. Excellent. I'm glad we delved deeper into that one. And uh, <laughs> finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, I think that the, the person who I admire most in terms of how to live, live an ethical life, I mean, again, it's a somewhat hackneyed choice, but Nelson Mandela, I am in awe of what, of what he did, the, the perseverance of being in prison for all that time, and then being free and actually treating his former captors with grace uh, and actually helping a country deal, you know, find the truth and reconcile that to its history. I, I think it's I think it's just breathtaking. I don't think I'm a good enough person to have to, to be able to, to do that. And then to go along and cheer on the Springboks after all of that. Uh, well, there you go. Right. And so, just, right. Uh, that's, that's, it's that's a very, remarka you know. remarkable legacy afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Daniel Pink, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Daniel's uh, latest book is called The Power of Regret. Uh, available at all good bookstores and online. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this chat with Daniel Pink, you might enjoy our past conversations with Lindsay Odes, Randolph Sparks and Martha Nussbaum. If you enjoyed the chat, I'd also love it if you'd take a moment just to mention it to a friend. Put something on social media or give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.